Hello and welcome to Tonebender Sound Design Podcast, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today as we talk with Johnny Byrne about his work on the new film, Poor Things, by director Yorgos Lanthimos. This film takes place in a past era that really never happened, so the sound is left to do some heavy lifting in this darkly fantastic world to make it feel grounded and real as we travel around. Featuring exceptional acting, set design, and overall vision that all sets the stage that the sound has to meet or exceed. Serving as sound designer, supervising sound editor, and re-recording mixer, our guest today, Johnny Byrne, had his hands and ears all over the whole film. I'm very excited to have Johnny back on Tone Menders because his last appearance in episode 204, where we talked about Nope, is one of my favorite talks since we started Tone Menders. It's good to talk to you again, Johnny. Thanks for joining us. Tim, thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Awesome. So let's talk a bit about the world building in this film, Poor Things. It kind of takes place in the past, but it's not a real past. Uh, Did you have to build rules for what kind of sounds to use? How did you build the world that uh, we hear in this film? Definitely there are rules. I think working with Yorgos, it's very much about, he wants to know that you understand his style of filmmaking and the worlds that he will create. And then he sort of allows you to go and experiment within that. So I guess when I first read the extraordinary script i thought wow you know the film really comes at you and there's so much humor but it was really when i saw the kind of the set design and and the extraordinary performances that that i really thought wow normal sound isn't gonna actually sound very interesting here in order to sound normal there was a phrase my mother once said to me which was what do you mean you do the sound on films they sound all right to me and i thought ah um there is actually more work that goes into it than that in order to to kind of have a soundscape that works and, and doesn't sort of stick out like a sore thumb, we would need to find some sounds that were less normal, basically, because, you know, it, it's there's some pretty surreal stuff going on. <laughs> so what were the rules that you came up with? Basically, try and recreate the sound that we wanted to hear, um, but go about it in a different way. So, for example, for the whole of the journey on the ship, the presence of the ship is very important to feel continuously for the suspension of disbelief in in a movie in movie making. And the chug of a of an old ferry would have probably brought everything down a bit. But what we ended up with was the sound of a heartbeat that was um, just slightly more interesting and it, and it had a sort of slightly more of an alive feel to it. So I think the the simple rule was get to the usual destination by an alternative route. Wow, that's a cool way to think about it. So can you give me an example of some other alternative routes? The sounds of the fireworks in that fantastic scene where Mark Ruffalo and Emma Stone sit on the roof and, and they have a conversation in amongst fireworks. Um, you know, we, we tried recording, uh, you know, normal fireworks from, uh, from a firework display, but what was actually more interesting was to include slightly vocal elements within the fireworks and more close up and present sounds then would have been basically normally heard from that point. I, I think the whole thing was to be within the world of a Lanthimos film, you have to kind of embrace it fully and, and have things that sound unusual, but get the audience used to that. Well, speaking of Yorgos, uh, one of the quotes in kind of the press notes for this film, when talking about the sound, he said that you're one of his few collaborators that he feels that he can trust kind of work on his own and then come in and see what you've done. Yeah. Uh, how how did you build that trust? Like it, this obviously isn't your first uh, rodeo with him, but uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about building that relationship? Yeah, he didn't he didn't mean to be in that position, but he ended up there <laughs> because um, basically we 
when uh, we were working on Killing of a Sacred Deer, which was the second film that we did together, we just got to pitch a lot pretty much. And he was, we were turning over the sound to me and, you know, we'd already had quite a bit of sound design in the Avid and we kind of knew what we were doing, but it was only my second film with him. And I thought, do I know enough about what this guy likes? And then I think it was Olivia Coleman became um, unexpectedly free and the film, The Favourite, was green lit almost immediately. And Yorgos came in and I was looking forward to spending four months with him making the sounds of Killing of a Sacred Deer. And he said, I'm sorry, I've got to go and um, shoot this film. <laughs> So uh, good luck with it. And, you know, and I, I did get him down to the final mix and, you know, played him where we were at as work in progress. And, and to be honest, you know, a director working at that level mid shoot, you know, his head wasn't in the right space to even accommodate thoughts on a, a different project. So really the, the first time that kind of really heard the mix of Killing of a Sacred Deer was at the Cannes Film Festival in the premiere. Oh, wow. And um, I have never sweated more than then sitting six seats over from him <laughs> but you know in the bar afterwards it all went pretty well so it was actually really empowering because I I think to that point I had spent a lifetime of working with directors and giving three options what really happened at that moment was I was forced to think entirely as the filmmaker more than the sound guy and what is the right decision here there are no alternatives you know what would he want and what is right for this film and it really really did sharpen the mind and and so consequently on poor things we you know we we had a couple of discussions about it and i know you well and and he knows where i'm likely to go with it and i got extremely far into sound post-production before playing it to yorgos because you know he, he basically says to me play me it when you're happy with it you know and, and that could ultimately mean pretty much mixed well, that's very different. With uh, the Nope talk that we had previously, you said that like the sound was almost locked before the picture was shot. So it's a totally different process between the two directors. Totally. I mean, Jordan hit me up because he'd seen Under the Skin and, you know, it was a real favorite film of his. And that was a film that I worked on with Jonathan Glazer. And he wrote the script of Nope very much with sound in mind. And I came on about a year before the shoot and we discussed, you know, how it might work. And I sent him a, a kind of a little package of 10 different sounds for what I imagined Dune Jacket would sound like. So the whole process was, was developing a kind of a, a sound identity for a character, which I guess is different to Poor Things, which is more about understanding the energy of the film and trying to be another impeccable facet of, of an extraordinary piece of work that really just comes at you <laughs> doesn't it so yeah it's that's more about the, the rhythms and the energy of, of how the sound works this film poor things is kind of it's i wouldn't say it's directly in two but there's kind of a first act that's very confined and it's in black and white and then yeah. our main character goes out in the world and everything is all of a sudden in color did that change your approach to sound the black and white versus color it, it did in as much as thinking of it narratively. The black and white was, is kind of, to some degree, you know, more the childhood of the character. And the sounds very much in the early section of the film do have a, a, a far more robust childlike quality to them. I, I was definitely following the trajectory of the maturity of, of Bella Baxter more than looking at the colours on the screen. When you get to Lisbon, it's, uh, it, it is much more of a sort of surround sound feast as well. So I think, yes, there is absolutely more embracing of, of kind of immersion at that point. Yeah, it's Particularly, I guess, in that first black and white section is where mostly is, there's lots of kind of machines and such like that. One that kind of plays a starring role is a digestive uh, liquids machine that William Defoe's character has beside him while he eats. 
And we don't really see it, but we've heard it for a little while. And I was like, what are all these bubbling sounds? And then we get to see it and see the craziness that uh, it does to him when he's finished eating. Do you want to talk about building these kind of fantastical uh, made up, but also old timey machines? We had a, a great time with hose pipes and large vases of water bubbling away. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's God's di- digestion system. And um, it's so funny to have like a digestive system that, that bubbles away outside of the body. And I think a, a funny thing for Yorgos to give us, you know, to, this external characteristic of one of the characters' sounds to to live so present in the room kind of thing, you know. And, and yes, it is entirely mechanical. Then after all, it is a Frankenstein movie. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting because the sounds that you used are inherently funny. Like, it makes the scene funny as well as dark in a weird way. Like, it's a weird balance that you had to ride because if you made it too serious, then it's just weird. But because that bubblings and stuff like that that you picked, it makes it delightful. And it's definitely yeah. cool the way you can affect a scene with sound that way. It's it's really funny, isn't it? I think the whole film is such a complete package. It It, it would seem on the surface of it that it would be hard to kind of overpower anything but it it was absolutely possible to put in sound that went too far and because you know in amongst Emma Stone's extraordinary performance and extraordinary sets the whole thing is actually incredibly subtle as well you know so it's a very light hand at work so yes as a sound designer my first instinct was great you know big deep bassy bubbling and but really that's It's just a character, you know, keep it simple. So other characters in the film are, William Defoe's character is doing genetic experiments to animals and creating hybrid animals that are just kind of roaming about the property. Uh, <laughs> how did you go about Brilliant. coming up with the sounds of these animals? Uh, there's a million directions you could have gone and you kind of uh, landed in a specific spot. Do you want to talk your way through your process on that? Yeah, totally. We, we So we had versions and versions. And oh, the first thing, I went to straight away was brilliant. You know, this is the chance for a vocoder and we can take the waveform of a duck and put it on a dog bark and, you know, different software algorithms for manipulating one sound with another. And they had me falling apart laughing, but but when I put them in the film and played them to Yorgos, he was right. They kind of popped you out because they were too absurd. <laughs> so what we ended up doing was going and recording animals, sort of waiting for or encouraging them to be in the moment where they mimic another animal. So like a dog that does a bark so quick that it sounds like a quack or editing on the reverb of a quack onto a dog bark or the 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 pig chicken thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was looking at the waveforms of a chicken cluck and then going meticulously through recordings of pigs and finding bits that look the same and then editing them into the same pattern so that the the rhythm and matching the pitch would basically have a chicken quality to it so i did the classic mistake of thinking i'm a sound designer this is brilliant and i'm going to make something really fancy but really what it needed was a kind of a simple edit around the idea of you know an animal that kind of mimics another in its cadence basically we have really fun jobs eh (laughs) i know (laughs) i'm lucky Just giving that task of, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and today I'm going to make a dog-duck hybrid. We live charmed lives. And then my kids who are mid-teens can't believe it. They're like, really? You get paid for this? (laughs) (laughs) So in our previous conversation, you talked about a lot about how you want to cut sound so that it has a melodic feeling, like find a melody within your sound design. And this film has a lot of space 
for sound to kind of play some melodies in the background. You also actually made an interesting comment about how Jordan Peele really liked it when you found some melodies in it and that Yorgos often asked if that was being too cute. Do you want to talk about how you landed on this film with that kind of idea? Poor Things is the first time that Yorgos has worked with a composer. And Jerskin Fendricks has delivered absolutely fantastic score. Sure, he will agree. And it's previous films that Yorgos had done where he has used music. He spent an awful lot of time listening to, to many different pieces of music. And then we put them together and edit them and make them work. Jerskin's score is actually a lot more spare and singular in its instrumentation than, than anything else. And really, whenever I work on a film, I'm absolutely always trying to marry the whole soundscape to the score because i think that's the way around it should go i don't you know there shouldn't be any imposition upon the composer but it is very possible to extract melody and rhythm from pretty much anything you know everything has some form of inherent pitch and tone and uh, rhythm to it so on every scene you know particularly if it say for example if we're coming out of a piece of music then it's probably a good idea to at the very least carry on a pitch in the background sound that is sympathetic and in the same key as the music or purposefully not because you want to disrupt you know but there's so much work to be done on sound that can lead the viewer in one way or another yeah i mean one of my favorite bits of the whole process is getting to the point where yorgos is pretty much like the mix and then i'll play him some work in progress and then i'll have time to loop every scene or even every shot and think to myself what is the film trying to say here and what possibly amongst these 17 clips that are playing at this particular time can I adjust to heighten that experience or that emotion or that narrative point? And quite often it's discarding things which will purify the tone that you're hearing. And quite often it might be, you know, amplifying something that we're missing. I'm always thinking what can be helpful here? You know, what in the what in the sound of the ship or or, or what in the sound of the sea? And one of the final things I was doing on the mix was when they are walking on the deck of the boat just before getting off in... Alexandria and we hear the sound of the sea and I was shaping it with putting in EQ filter suite so that the sound of, of the sea off the side of the boat would kind of sweep up and down in amongst the dialogue but it gives it a really nice kind of dreamy romantic feel to it just before they go out for dinner you know so which is quite appropriate so yeah I think there's always stuff to be done I wish I had like 10 years to mix every film <laughs> then they'd be really good yeah then you finally get the hang of it eh? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, I was recently talking to someone that was at, I think it was Telluride, where both Poor Things and Zone of Interest both played. And he was talking to me about both films. And I mentioned to him that you had done the sound on both of them. And uh, his mind was kind of blown. I, I haven't seen Zone of Interest <laughs> yet, but he said that the vibe is very different. Did you work on them concurrently? Did they come after each other? How, how did you transition from one to the other? Gosh, they, they are two such different films. And both of them had their own COVID-related hiatus issues and stuff. So they did very much run concurrently, although over such a large period of time. The Zone of Interest is a Holocaust movie, for those who don't know. And it's one where there are almost two films at play. There's a sort of family drama that you see. And then there's an entirely different film, which is a soundscape of horror coming over the camp wall. And you never go in the camp and you never actually see anything awful. But kind of you know probably the most violent film I've ever worked on and that's all in the sound and I was so grateful when I had to pause working on that for about a month to go and mix poor things <laughs> it was it, it was the perfect relief right at the right moment <laughs> I remember actually going for a walk with Yorgos around Berkeley Square in in London and years back and saying I think Jonathan's film is going to come the same time as yours and um I'm not sure I hope it does and he said well you've obviously got to do both Jonathan's an extraordinary filmmaker you know you, I'm sure you can find a way don't worry about it so 
yeah, two very different films. <laughs> the Q and A's that I've been doing in New York and London film festivals and stuff. If I ever lose my train of thought and kind of come to in a room, I think I have to think very carefully about the tone <laughs> at which I angle the conversation. <laughs> For sure. Thank you very much for talking to us today. I think we're out of time, but uh, it was great talking to you. And maybe uh, down the road, we can have you on for Zone of Interest once I get a chance to see it. That'd be a great. Really nice to talk to you, Tim. I really enjoyed talking to Johnny. I hope I can see Zone of Interest soon. I've heard great things about the sound of that film. I want to do a little humble brag and let you know that Tonebenders has been nominated twice for the Game Audio Network Guild or Gang Awards this year. It is such an honor to be listed in the press release with such amazing sound people nominated in all categories. Congratulations to everyone. I want to send out a big thanks to Andrew Rockefort for editing and mixing this episode. As a sound enthusiast, Andrew works in sound design for video games and as an audio editor. You can contact him through his Twitter at Andrew Rockefort. That's R-O-C-A-F-O-R-T. He will be getting a copy of the amazing sound library, Sonic Springs, for helping us out. Up next, we have an amazing talk with the sound team from Ferrari, so stay tuned. Okay, my name's Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.